All right. Welcome, everybody. We're live. This is The Social Brain. This is episode 10. Excuse my voice. I'm getting over laryngitis, so I kind of sound like a frog today. But uh, I am Taylor Guthrie, and I run the channel The Cellular Republic. I'm a social neuroscientist, uh, and this is my awesome co-host, Andrew Cooper Sansone, that runs Sense of Mind. And today, we're going to be talking about interoception. And I'm going to kick it over to Andrew. He's going to kind of tell you a little bit about what we're going to talk about. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Um, and hey, everybody, I hope you're doing well on this Tuesday morning or afternoon or whatever, wherever you are. But um, anyway, wherever you are, I want to kind of invite you to engage in some interoception. So if you can, just kind of take a moment to feel what's going on inside your body, on the surface of your skin, your muscles. Um, you know, maybe there's something in your stomach. Maybe you feel hungry or not hungry. Maybe you're not really feeling any specific area, but it's kind of just the hum of, of life and biology happening inside you, your breath maybe. Um, so the point of that is uh, not to take you through a, a meditation or anything, but it's just to kind of show that these feelings that you're having seem like they're coming from inside your body. It seems like your stomach is what's actually feeling hungry or your muscles are feeling sore or whatever. Um, but it's really that those sensations, while they're coming from your body, the perception of them, your experience of them is happening in your brain. So um, we're gonna be talking about how the brain produces these feelings, um, but and, and how that can happen without any real physiological changes, any stimulation in your body. Um, so, you know, if you have butterflies in your stomach because you're anxious or stressed, uh, that's an example of, of your brain kind of producing one of these interoceptive feelings. Um, but uh, your brain can also make you feel something in your body when it's uh, not really happening. I guess that's, that's sort of what I just said. Uh, but it can also interpret re real feelings coming from your body in emotional terms. So, you know, if you are feeling sick and uh, you go to an interview, a job interview or something, you might be thinking, oh, I'm just anxious, but that's all, that could be an interoceptive, real physiological sensation. So anyway, we're going to be getting into the neuroscience of interoception, how all this works. Um, and throughout this, we're going to be talking about how your brain sort of builds this model of the internal conditions of your body. Um, so anyway, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get into it. Um, and uh, I, at the end of this, we are going to talk about some strategies you can use uh, that involve interoception for reducing stress. And we're going to talk about chronic pain, uh, pain yep. in general. So anyway, maybe we should just jump in and talk about what interoception actually is. And I, I think uh, so much of what you just said is, is really powerful to kind of reflect on that uh, there's a lot of experiences, a lot of feelings that we have that are created based on our cognitive state right? The whatever kind of physical surroundings we're in, the type of people we're around, those can actually produce visceral feelings inside of us. Uh, and so much of, of what we've talked about so far with like mindfulness, with all of these things has, has been very cognitive in nature, right? But I think something that's really important to remember is that the brain is in a body that's it's, it's embodied, right? And and honestly, I mean, some one of the things that I think about when I think about kind of these topics, uh, it's the title of, of my YouTube channel, is that the brain evolved to take care of the body, right? And so we really have to, to think a lot about there's a reason why the feelings that you're feeling are getting to awareness. Because like 98% of what your body experiences does, does not get to, to your awareness, right? So really kind of thinking about all of that. Uh, and what kind of what Andrew was just saying is let's let's kind of jump in and, and think, what is this this term interoception uh, and kind of what field of research is really kind of diving into understanding how we kind of make these perceptual models of feelings themselves that that create this kind of embodied uh, portion of the thoughts that we have and the feelings that we have. So I'm going to kick it over to you, Andrew. You want to kind of take a stab at the definition? Yeah, I guess. Um, well, so I have a video on interoception on my channel. 
And I use a definition there, which is basically kind of an older definition of interoception, um, but one that I think um, it kind of helps clarify things. But anyway, it's it's this idea that it's just the perception of the physiological conditions of your body. And in that video, I kind of refer to it as the internal sensations of your body. And I was alluding to that earlier. Um, more modern definitions of interoception involve also uh, what's going on on your skin and um, in your your muscular musculoskeletal system. I guess there's maybe differing views about that among neuroscientists, but I just think about it as your body's or your brain's uh, perception of the state of your body, especially kind of internal physiological visceral sensations. And I, I think you're alluding to something that's that's really important in that uh, there, there's a term, I don't know if everybody knows what the term means, but uh, homeostasis, homeostatic function, right? Uh, so much of what the brain does is trying to regulate uh, you according to your environment, right? So if you go into a really cold environment, you have to regulate, you have to manage your temperatures so that you, you stay at your 98 degrees or whatever you're at. Uh, but there's also a lot of other stuff that has to do with with blood flow, uh, with hormone regulation. Um, so so much of that is this regulation to the environment. But what's really interesting about that is that homeostasis requires some type of change according to the environment. But a liver cell doesn't know how the environment is changing, right? And so you really have to have this whole system, this whole nervous system that's able to integrate what's going on outside of the body with what's going on inside to be able to send all of these signals. And so you're seeing this kind of integration happen between kind of what the brain is doing and what it's figuring out about the world and then how it's then sending signals to then regulate all of these bodily systems. Um, and so much of that involves signals, right? The body has to tell the brain somehow what it's going through. Um, and this is kind of my, my whole metaphor about the cellular republic is that you have these communities of cells that are communicating with the brain, this like governmental structure up here and saying, we need something, right? And it's, I think it's really important to start thinking about feelings in that way, that they are signals that mean something. Your body is trying to tell you something. Yeah, that's a really good point. And homeostasis is good to kind of linger on for a second because, um, Everything you're just saying, uh, well, it kind of centers on energy utilization throughout the body. Um, you know, you have, like Taylor was saying, you have these cells that don't know what's going on in the outside environment, um, but they need to continue working and they need to get the right nutrients and energy so that they can continue working. Um, but in different organs and different tissues at different times, there's going to be different needs for um, energy. So the brain is going to have to kind of figure out how to efficiently allocate that energy to the various tissues and organs that need it at the right time. So when you, you know, sprint, when you're sprinting down the street, um, you need a lot more energy delivered to your muscles in your legs and throughout your body and your lungs. Um, than when you're just sitting quietly. And, um, well, you know, interestingly, some of people's kind of like emotional distress and uh, difficulties with regulating emotions can come from, you know, a misallocation of resources from the brain to the rest of the body. Um, but uh, it is really important, like Taylor said, to remember that these feelings about your body uh, or from your body are about your body. It's your body kind of telling your brain what it needs in this weird neural feeling language, I guess. <laughs> right. um, yeah, go for it. And that's, I think what you just said is is, is really fascinating because it's something I've been, I've been thinking about a lot. Uh, your body doesn't speak English, right? Yes. Your brain does. Uh, and I think this is a really big source of suffering for a lot of people is that we're trying to translate feeling into English, into cognitive things, right? Uh, and a lot of uh, a lot of working with with feeling, working with pain. Uh, we'll kind of get into that as we get later into the episode, but really involves kind of spending time with those feelings in kind of a, a non-judgmental way, not trying to create this this cognitive understanding of it, but just kind of being with it, listening to it. 
uh, and learning kind of uh, to kind of bring my metaphor back in, like learning that language, right? The, the government doesn't know what the language is. So it's trying to make up these, these reasons why it should do this or reasons why it should do that. Uh, when really it needs to be spending time like going and visiting those communities and, and really figuring out what that language is and what that's trying to communicate uh, in order to, to actually serve those communities of cells in a better way. Yeah, and that, that's a really, um, really fascinating topic for sure. And I think you're right that a lot of the time it's that we need to pay attention to these signals. The brain needs to get in touch with what the body's doing. But as we've talked about kind of on an earlier episode about meditation, about mindfulness, um, it's possible, I think, um, and Andrew Huberman, the podcaster, neuroscientist, talks about this, that it's possible to overtrain that interoception and kind of become over attentive to every little change that's happening in your body and then to interpret that in kind of emotional terms like you know it, just a, a flutter in your stomach can turn into an existential crisis because you're just so <laughs> locked into that interoception um before we go on i just wanted to note uh, uh v ands uh, on the the chat sent us a message says took part in an ecological intervention study which pinged us at regular intervals asking us to report bodily sensations and then do a survey on mood and it honestly helped a bit that's really great to hear um like taylor said we're going to be talking more about how to use interoception probably throughout this episode but really uh, near, later on um so yeah, thank you for that comment. That's that's great. Uh, and any other questions or comments that you guys have, just please don't hesitate to throw them in here. We'd love to uh, make this a conversation. And I think I think that really plays into what you're just saying too, because uh, we kind of have this understanding of so interoception is this representation that we have of what's going on inside our body, right? Skin down, uh, temperature, pressure, uh, the allocation of resources, right? So like Andrew is saying. Uh, your stomach needs a lot of resources when you eat. That's why they tell you not to eat before you go exercise, right? Because they're kind of in opposition to one another. And so there's this constant balancing act that's going on in your body. And so much of, of like mindfulness can be used to really kind of tune into some of that stuff. And I think that's really kind of what, what Vianne's in the, in the comment section is, is alluding to, is that there's so many of us that don't really kind of understand the the power and the, the ability that we have to reflect on some of these things. We have this superpower as humans, like we have a frontal lobe that allows us to think about our thoughts, to think about our feelings. Um, and something that we'll, we'll kind of get into as we start talking about some of the anatomy here in a second, uh, is that the representations that we have of our body are really, really complex compared to other animals. Uh, it's it should should be noted that like we have really strong representations of our body and something that Andrew was saying that uh, I think kind of resonates with me is that what I was mentioning earlier with the whole our body doesn't speak English is that if you're doing all of this mindfulness and you're listening to your body, then you get really in tune with it, but you still don't really know the language very well. Right. You know that like you have these feelings coming up. But then there's a lot of the time that we start to create explanations for it when we don't really understand them. And I mean, we'll talk later in the episode. I have some some very poignant kind of personal experience with this, with a lot of pain that I've been in over the years, a lot of kind of stress induced pain that I've gone through. Uh, and so much of kind of that that anxiety that comes is developing a fear around those feelings because you don't understand them because you don't have the language to really figure out what it is that it's trying to tell you um, and so we'll talk as we get into kind of pain and things we'll talk about some strategies for approaching that yeah that's that's also fascinating uh, we could probably just spend the entire episode talking about that stuff but we want to talk a little bit about the neuroscience the anatomy of how this works um problem promise it won't be too boring <laughs> people um but anyway so the 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 first thing is to just think about your body as uh, this giant network of nerves. I mean, obviously you have other organs, other organ systems and tissues and all that, but there's this massive um, network of these sensory nerve fibers going throughout your body that are reporting all kinds of different information back up to your central nervous system. Um, but it's important to realize that there's there are, you know, receptors for um, pressure. There are receptors for 
um, sensing kind of the the um, oxygenation of tissue and all kinds of different physiological conditions. So those are um, they basically originate in the body these sensations and then they're sent into the spinal cord up into your brain and um, from there they go to some, a series of brain regions. Um, but I don't know if you want to throw anything in before I start just naming the multisyllabic no, no. brain region names. <laughs> right. Uh, and I don't want people to get lost in the, the nomenclature. Uh, Andrew's uh, video in his channel on on this topic is is one of the best videos I've seen from them. It's really good. Uh, and it really dives into a lot of the, the anatomy. And he, he was going off of a review paper from uh, a neuroanatomist, a functional neuroanatomist named Bud Craig, that has some of the most detailed work I've ever seen in this regards. And he was, he was really kind of uh, confused when he was like in, in graduate school and things like that, that all of the textbooks described pain as all happening in the same place as like touch and all of these things. Uh, and what Andrew was just describing is that we have all of these nerves for all of these bodily sensations, uh, for pressure, for temperature, for pain, for all of these things. But then we also have ones for, for tactile sensation, for touch. Uh, and those are actually separate, um, very, very distinct kind of evolutionarily, phylogenetically, that there is a very different pathway for touch, for movement type sensation, for proprioception, and for actual homeostatic type feelings. Um, and those are going to go to different brain regions. There's... Uh, and Andrew's going to jump into kind of the main one for kind of visceral stuff. But I think something that really upset Bud Craig and something that, I mean, if we have psychology students or anyone listening, they probably know about the somatosensory cortex, this homunculus, this, this map of the body that if you stimulate the brain, you actually feel these like tingling sensations where it's like, this part is your hand and this part is your arm. Uh, and in a lot of textbooks, it's showed that that's also where, where pain was, where temperature was, where all of this stuff was. And Bud Craig was like, no, because when you stimulate it, you don't feel pain. You don't feel temperature. Uh, and so he kind of did this whole the 25 years of work mapping out this whole system. Yeah, which is really amazing. And um, yeah. I just want to for people watching, I just want to show this visual just so we can kind of get a, a basic idea of, of the brain regions we're talking about. But anybody listening, this isn't really necessary for understanding. I think it just kind of gives you a slightly better understanding of what's going on. Um, let me see if I can do this. Uh, here we go. Okay, so I hope hope everybody's kind of seeing that. So um, these are the main brain regions involved in interoception. And like we said, uh, you have all these sensations coming in from your body, from the viscera and, um, and elsewhere, when they come up through your spinal cord and into specifically the, the thalamus. So if you're looking at this graphic, that's this orange region on the left uh, diagram of the brain. Um, this is really important for as a kind of a relay station for all sensory information. But um, in this case, uh, we're talking about the interoceptive sensations coming from your body. And then the thalamus relays that information. It's kind of a map of the internal uh, sensations of your body. It's kind of like what Taylor was talking about, where you've got in the somatosensory cortex, you have a map of kind of the skin, the surface of the body, and uh, you can, you know, uh, map this out on the brain and have like a one-to-one -one correspondence to the body. Um, and that's similar with the um, interoceptive signals. So they come in from the body and then are represented in the thalamus as um, a I won't even use the jargon, but basically it's that same sort of map. And then that is sent to uh, these regions on the right. So in this picture, it's the AIC and the PIC, and that's the anterior insular cortex and the uh, posterior insular cortex. And then also um, on the left here, the anterior cingulate cortex. So these are the regions we're really going to be talking about. But as far as the sensations, the actual feelings of your body, those are occurring in this insular cortex area. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, we'll get into a little bit more later, but um, just so you can see on this graphic, these insular cortex is kind of buried underneath the outer cortex of the brain. And um, 
also on this image, they highlight that these are distinct from the somatosensory cortex that uh, that Taylor was mentioning. That's that red strip that says SI1 slash S, or sorry, S1 slash S2. Um, so anyway, that uh, I will stop sharing now, but that's just to give you an idea of what we're talking about, the areas of the brain we're talking about. And I think something that's really kind of fascinating to point out uh, that, that really struck me when I was getting into some of this work is that this this pathway that that Andrew just described of having this this portion of the thalamus, which is kind of this relay center up into this island cortex, this insula uh, is a very new structure evolutionarily, a very new pathway. So we see it in primates, but it's really small in primates and it's giant in humans. And so something happened in our evolution where our brain started to be able to make really strong representations of what our body was going through to be able to regulate all of this stuff in a much more efficient way. Most animals in the animal kingdom, the only representation they have of any type of homeostasis is in their brainstem. And so it's not a very complex representation at all. And it doesn't give them a, a really nice map to work with to be able to really regulate all of this stuff. So really kind of reflect on that a little bit because we, I mentioned this like superpower that we have with the frontal lobe, but that really comes into play here, right? Because our ability to regulate our own body is very unique, right? We are able to interpret our feelings and change them. And that's a lot because of these, these really high order representations that we have in this, this really cool brain structure that we're about to get into uh, that is this kind of fifth lobe that's hidden in the brain that's called the insula yeah and uh just to to put some uh, numbers to what taylor was just saying um this is i'm quoting bud craig again from this uh interoception and emotion chapter of the handbook of emotions and he's talking about what taylor was just saying where he says interoceptive cortex in the monkey extends the entire um, length of the insula which is approximately six to eight millimeters but in humans, the insula is much larger, approximately 50 to 60 millimeters. So that's a that's a factor of almost 10 times larger. And that's so you can see what Taylor's saying, that there's something about humans, there's something about our brains, even compared to our evolutionarily uh, closest relatives, that we have a really rich representation of our interoceptive signaling and um, kind of what we're going to get into now is how the brain is, it's not only receiving these signals and representing them in the insular cortex, but it's also um, modulating those signals from the top down. And I think oh. something really important to point out. So there was a, a distinction in what Andrew just shared of this. Uh, there was a, a posterior, which means kind of closer to the back portion of the insula. And there's an anterior portion, which is kind of closer to the front. Uh, and what's really, I mean, Bud Craig mapped this, this whole thing out, which is really cool, that the posterior portion is all of that input from, from the viscera, from homeostatic function, and all of that kind of stuff that comes from the thalamus. But as you get to the middle insula, you start to then integrate all of that homeostatic function with what's coming from somatosensory, from movement. And so it's starting to say, okay, what are the needs of the body? What are the needs for movement and for touch? It starts to integrate things from the amygdala and from the hypothalamus, which is about kind of what kind of threats are present, uh, what salient stuff is around us, and how is that affecting our homeostatic function? But then by the time you get to the anterior portion of the insula, that's actually taking into account what the entire brain is doing. Because if you really think about it, if the insula is a homeostatic regulator, right? If it's really creating a representation of the energy demands of the body, the brain accounts for 25% of that, right? The brain uses so much freaking energy. And so by the time you get to the anterior insula, you have this representation of the body, you have this representation of the goals and intentions, but then you also have a representation of everything that the brain cares about and everything the brain is doing. And all of that is all combined into a feeling state that you're actually aware of. And I think something that's really important to kind of get out of that, what Andrew was hinting at, is that produces the top-down effects that can cause 
because of what our brain is thinking about, because of our cognition, because of what intents and motivations and, and things we have going on, we can actually cause pain to go the other way. We can cause feelings to go the other way that didn't come from the body, right? Our cognitive state can affect top down all of these things that are going on. Yeah. And that's, what's, what's kind of fascinating about it is that like, and this just always blow, blows my mind about neuroscience that when you, it, it, it's like your subjective experience um, is kind of, I won't say independent of, but it's, it, uh, it doesn't matter if you, if you stimulate the body or the brain in the corresponding region, uh, you're going to experience it at the same way. So it can come, feelings can come from the brain as the brain kind of imposing a feeling state, or it can also come from the body. And typically it's sort of a mixture of both. It's not one or the other. It's that we're, we're integrating um, these top-down signals that Taylor was just very eloquently explaining and also uh, just uh, modeling the body, the, the physiological state as accurately as possible. Um, so, uh, oh yeah. And one thing I want to mention about the, the, um, the fact that humans that our, our feelings seem to be so rich and our, our ability to map our body, the interoceptive sensations, so uh, advanced compared to other animals. Um, this book called The Strange Order of Things by Antonio Damasio, he's kind of an emotions researcher, neuroscientist, neurologist. And um, he, his kind of argument in this book is that feelings are sort of the basis of human cultures because they sort of drive us to create, for example, inventions like medical inventions that allow us to relieve pain and to um, cure diseases. And that's sort of the, the basic level of it. But if you want to get more into how uh, feelings and culture and a lot of the, the stuff we've been talking about here, how that all works, I would definitely recommend this book. There's a lot of good books about it. But um, yeah, I'll put that in the a link in the chat or sorry, in the description. And I think that I think it's a really good segue too into kind of the emotional side of this, right? Because everything that we've kind of been talking about so far has, has really been kind of actual, tangible, visceral feelings, right? Touching something, feeling the internal, internal state of, of your body and all of these kind of things. Uh, Andrew has a, a great intro to his, his video on this topic that kind of talks about how it's not just these tangible things that we feel, right? We also feel emotions. Uh, and I think the the reason I, I, I thought the Antonio Damasio book is a really good segue into that is because so much of our emotions are social in nature, right? That we have these things that we're re reacting to other people, anger, sadness, fear. Uh, so much of that is kind of a, a, so a, a social concept. And sometimes it's really powerful to come out of the, the neuroscience literature around kind of the insula is that these emotional feelings are happening in the same place as tangible feelings that this this whole kind of representation is a representation of our feeling state whether it's feeling angry and having the visceral sensations that come with feeling angry but those emotions are embodied right they have this component and it has very overlapping uh neural circuitry that's involved with all of that yeah that's it's it is just um it's fascinating. Uh, we got, I, I want to try to tie this question in. Uh, we got a question from get smart quick in the chat. He says, uh, he or she, I don't know. I says, weird question. How do feelings tie in with spirituality? Um, that is a great question. Uh, it's a, it's a big topic. Uh, we were talking earlier about how mindfulness as kind of a, a spiritual practice, contemplative practice, um, can, can alter your, both how interoceptive versus extraceptive are, that is how focused on the internal sensations of your body are versus uh, the outside world. And um, I would just throw in that any sort of spiritual experience that you have, if it's like kind of a transcendent experience or, or anything like that, um, there are going to be feelings involved. And so the, the insula is definitely going to be involved. This interoception is going to be a part of that. Um, but I know that's that's a really broad sort of hand wavy answer. <laughs> it's it's embodied. Uh, any and it's I mean I think one of the biggest problems with answering that question is it's hard to define spirituality, right? 
And so, I mean, some people talk about it in terms of just our ability to reflect, our ability to be kind of present in the moment, to have these kind of these feelings of what it means to to be human and to be kind of connected to this body that we're that we're tied to. Uh, and so much of that is involved in this whole process that we're talking about. And how is it that we put all of this stuff together, right? And we have VNs talking about uh, the physical pain of heartbreak, right? All of these things, they have this very visceral component. Uh, and we have a cognitive representation of them, right? We have this cognitive representation of our attachment to that other person and how important that is. And it ties into our goals and our intentions and, and these models that we're creating about what we want to accomplish in the future and all of these things. And that then gets tied to the bodily states that come with that. And I think one of the really important things, and this can maybe segue as we're getting from emotion into kind of pain, uh, is that there's a lot of pain that isn't structural in nature, right? There is very distinct pain that like if I break my arm and there are sensors going off in my arm that are like, you're in pain right now, do something about it. That's that's a very distinct kind of pain. There's a location associated with it, right? But there's a lot of pain that doesn't have, like you can maybe feel it in your stomach a lot of the time. Or you have pain in your back that it hurts a lot when you're in a really stressful situation, but then when you're out having fun, it doesn't hurt anymore, right? Uh, there's That's the kind of stuff that that I find fascinating in regards to this like interplay between our cognitive reality and how that kind of interacts with uh, what he is kind of doing in a moment and the signals the body's giving to us. Yeah, that's, that is uh, really great. It made me think of phantom limb syndrome. So people who get um, amputees, people who get a, a limb amputated can sometimes experience phantom limb sensations. That is they're feeling sensations in a limb that they no longer have. And so this, this uh, really like puts a fine point on the fact that your brain is doing the feeling. Your brain is actually the thing that's, that is uh, creating that feeling. So that's why it's possible for people who get an arm or a leg amputated to have pretty severe pain in, in those, you know, non-existent limbs, those phantom limbs. And there are these interesting uh, therapies that have been devised where you kind of fool the brain into thinking that it has that limb still, that that, that limb is actually there. And there's multiple ways of doing this, but there's like this mirror box illusion where you put a mirror in front of somebody. And so it looks like they're, the limb that they do have is reflected on the other side. So it's kind of like they can sort of see that they they have a limb in quotes, you know, um, and then they can like massage that arm and work the pain out virtually. And it actually has a really, uh, not for everybody, but for many people has a really significant effect on relieving that chronic pain. Um, so I think maybe that's a good, good segue. I guess you had already mentioned chronic pain, but, um, but just pain <laughs> in general is, it can be very psychological. When I, I mean, uh, kind of adding on to what you just said, because Ramachandran's work is, is fascinating, uh, that gets into this kind of phantom limb pain. Uh, and something that really stood out to me in a lot of these studies was that they noticed that if a person had injured their arm and it was amputated immediately, a lot of the times they didn't have phantom pain. Uh, but the people that had phantom pain were the ones that injured it. And then it was in a sling, in a certain kind of position for a long time, for like a month or so or whatever, and then it was amputated. And so the brain developed this cognitive representation of my my arm is stuck in this position, my arm is in pain, my arm is this, uh, and that didn't go away after the amputation. They still felt pain in that area where the arm was. And I think something that, that may have kind of slipped by with what Andrew was saying that I think is really important to kind of reflect on for a minute is that they felt safe when they were able to put their arm in this mirror box and it looked like their arm existed again. It gave their brain a signal that that arm is safe, that arm is okay, right? And it allowed mm -hmm. them to create a, an entirely new cognitive representation of that part of their body that then was able to send top-down signals to say, it's okay, stop sending the signal, right? And I think moving forward, I think one of the most important things that 
that I've learned about pain <clears throat> that uh, that I think has, has been really helpful for me is that pain is a protective signal, right? So much of what we do with pain is we treat it as a fear signal, right? Something that we need to, to run away from, something that we need to hide from. Uh, and that actually, a lot of the time, creates more pain. Uh, it creates this this cognitive representation that there is there's this threat that I need to run away from mm -hmm. all the time uh, that I think prolongs our experience of that pain. But really what the pain is trying to tell you is it's signaling to you that there is something that you need to protect yourself from. And it's giving you an opportunity to go cognitively through that and say, okay, what is this signal actually trying to tell me? What is this signal telling me about my environment? What is it telling me about maybe some structural damage that I have inside of my body? Uh, but I mean, we'll kind of dive more into it. There's a lot of really interesting social components to pain that, uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's kind of just, um, it might seem obvious at this point, but um, so we're talking about how, how, there's sort of this overlap between what we typically consider like mental or emotional experiences and physical ex sensations, physical experiences of our body. And that is, that is definitely true. It seems in the realm of social pain. So social pain um, can be, you know, brought on by rejection and um, being kind of negatively evaluated by other people. Um, so uh, being uh, separated from a caregiver, if you're a child. Um, and what has been shown is that the, the, some of the same brain regions and some of the same brain chemistry, especially involving the endogenous, endogenous opioid system, um, the endorphins, in other words, uh, those are, are active in both social pain and physical pain. And I'm not the social neuroscientist here, so I'm gonna let Taylor <laughs> tackle this one. Uh, it's it's really interesting. I I, I heard some stuff from uh, there's an evolutionary uh, evolution kind of uh, neuroscientist uh, Barb Finley that has this really interesting idea about pain. That pain is also a social signal. That it's it's a way that we can communicate to other people that we have needs that need to be taken care of, right? And there's really interesting data that's come out about the, uh, there's, there's like, uh, there's one study that I can kind of think of off the top of my head about, uh, factory workers. I think it was in Finland. I can't remember, but they were, they were kind of doing hard manual labor a lot of the time. And so there was a lot of, uh, reports of back pain that came out of these factories, but the really interesting kind of component to this that fell out of the data was that the people that experienced the most pain, the most back pain were the people that worked in the most stressful social environments that had really bad bosses that had really anxiety inducing coworkers, right? That there was something about that environment that was sending a signal to them that was saying this place is unsafe. And it created a pain that that felt visceral, right? It was like the body was saying, don't go there. But it was saying that through pain, right? And I think there's there's a lot of people that can can probably re relate to that. Uh, there's a lot of, of studies that show that uh, people that report being more madly in love with their significant other report a lot less pain than people that are in stressful, conflict-ridden relationships. Uh, and so much of this is a signal to you. So you have, you also have like the, the child that gets bullied at school, right? That all of a sudden gets a stomach ache every morning before they go to school and is, is in actual visceral pain, right? And a lot of the times the mom's just like, oh, whatever, you're faking it or whatever. But no, they, they are actually in pain. Like there's the whole like, oh, it's all in your head. But no, like your cognitive representation is creating an actual feeling. It's creating a visceral feeling. It's sending signals to your body. Body is responding, and it's producing an overall kind of signal to you. You need to do something cognitively to fix that situation because your body's telling you that it's in danger, right? And so, what a lot of uh, so we're about to jump into to chronic pain, which is really kind of fascinating because a lot of what works for structural pain doesn't work for chronic pain. And I think it's really important here right at the offset uh, to say that I am not a medical doctor. We are not medical doctors, so we are not prescribing anything. Uh, we, as Andrew Huberman says, 
we are professors, we profess things. Uh, but uh, so, <laughs> but it's it's really interesting to start thinking about the the type of pain that goes away when the social situation changes, right? And I think that's really important to kind of just kind of let sink in for a minute. Yeah, yeah. And so we got a good question here. And I, um, from Get Smart Quick, we got actually two questions. I want to get to your earlier one. But first, um, this definitely feeds into what we're talking about. So how do you notice fake pain from real pain, uh, like malingering and hypochondriacs? Um, so how do you differentiate from from between real and fake pain. And I guess kind of what we're talking about here is that there is a difference. There is the difference of if there's actual structural damage in the body and somebody's reporting pain coming from there, um, it's likely that, that that is at least partially the source of their actual experience of pain. Um, but kind of the the something we'll get to in a little bit is certain medications work better for actual structural pain and some actually work better for this sort of more psychological, more just um, brain pain, we can call it. Um, so I think it's it, it really has to do with looking at the if the actual tissue is damaged or if there's something that would make you think that there would be pain going on in that area, that would be a good sign that it, it probably has some physical component. But if it's not, if there's no physical sign of pain, then obviously that might be uh, just more in the brain. And I think too, I think one of the, the really good tests for like, where is this pain coming from is you have to you have to use the superpower I told you about. You have to reflect, uh, and you have to really think about when the pain is present and when the pain is not present. Because if all of a sudden you're out with your friends and you're having a good time, and uh, and the pain's not there at all, but then you go home to a stressful situation, or you go to work and you have a really crappy boss or whatever, and all of a sudden you're just like in pain, right? Uh, that could be a big signal that that's a, a neural circuitry thing going on. Uh, that that are that signals that your body is sending you to saying like there's something about this environment rather than there's something structurally about me, and something that's that's really interesting too to think about is that so I used to do uh, medical device sales. I used to sell artificial hips and knees to doctors and go in during surgery. Uh, one of the really interesting statistics that comes out is that when people go in to get a a knee surgery, thirty percent, twenty five to thirty percent of the people that get a knee surgery have pain still after the knee surgery. And there are a lot of people that will go in that weren't in pain, but just somehow like had to have like an x-ray or a, an MRI done on their knee. And they're like bone on bone, no cartilage, but they have no pain at all. Uh, and there's there's something there about our, I think there's there's something about our environment that creates these cognitive models that we have about how we interpret these internal feelings that we're having that cause us to either fear them. I mean, you, you mentioned hypochondriacs. Uh, a lot of hypochondria is, is being in a constant state of fear of these feelings that are coming from the body because they don't know how to interpret them. There's no one to, to kind of tell them what those feelings mean because you can't just go in and say like, why is my heart beating fast? You have to go through like all of these really intense tests that might find something, but it probably isn't the source of the actual pain. And really what helps in a lot of these situations is yoga, meditation, uh, paradoxically, opioid blockers, uh, which is really interesting because yeah. there's this idea that your brain, because it's in this constant like state of pain, it's already releasing a bunch of opioids. And so really kind of shutting that down helps really weirdly. Uh, but I think that is... It really kind of uh, something that stands out in the counseling literature that's a, a really big kind of thing right now is kind of this uh, this idea of like the polyvagal theory, which I think we can do kind of an entire episode on. It's fascinating, but it's all about the difference between being in a fear state and being in a kind of safe state, right? And a lot of what works for some of this pain is doing the cognitive work to sit there and and I mean, you have to be kind of trauma informed with some of this stuff, because a lot of people that have been through trauma, it's really scary to be inside your body, to have your eyes closed, to kind of feel these feelings. Uh, but so much of somatic processing 
is being in a state where you're feeling the pain, you're feeling these feelings, but you're also reminding yourself that you're safe, right? You're, you're activating kind of these, these parasympathetic vagal afferents and things that are reminding your brain that like, we need to rewire what these signals actually mean. That like, yes, I understand what you're trying to tell me, body, but I'm safe. I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we both have a couple of personal stories on that. Um, and just to clarify, we got a question here in the comment that uh, how can you see, I'm sorry, this is from a better world. How can you see a physical sign of pain if pain is transmitted through nerves or brain signals, which are like a black box to some degree? That's a good question. Um, what we're talking about is like, you'd have to get x-rays or different kinds of scans, or, I mean, if it's not obvious, like if Taylor said, if your arm's broken, that's probably the source of your pain. Um, and, uh, but you know, yeah, there might be, there could really be like a, a, some growth or something that you can't see that is causing, you know, pain in your, in your body somewhere. Um, so that's kind of what we're talking about. Looking for the structural, the physical sign of pain would probably in, entail going to like a doctor or, um, yeah, yeah. going to some kind of medical professional. Um, and I, I mean, um, I guess I can kind of share. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I was going to, I was going <laughs> to say we should jump into our stories. Um, mine might yeah, be, yeah. I don't know if mine's I think a that dovetails shorter. I don't know. I'll, you know, I'll go just go it. ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah, so, yeah. uh, no. yeah, so a couple years ago I was, um, I was doing this, I was actually in a journalism grad program, which seems weird, but I was getting into science writing and stuff. And, um, it was right around, it was right when the pandemic was happening, um, when we were like totally locked in and, um, my, I also had a couple of like really stressful events that happened. I had a really close friend of mine who just tragically unexpectedly um, died. And uh, so there was just a lot going on where I was in this program and I was just like working all the time. And I was also just experiencing a lot of stress from grief and then also from just being inside constantly. I think everybody can relate to that from the pandemic. Um, and I started developing what I would have sworn was like an ulcer or some kind of actual structural problem in my gut. It was kind of in the lower right quadrant of my, my uh, torso. And it just always like every time, like Taylor said, every time I sat down to start my work for the day, I just started getting this awful pain and it got kind of worse and worse throughout the day. Sometimes it would go away and I could figure out ways to sort of, um, ameliorate it, but it just hurt really bad. And it was hard to, to do anything that caused even just like a modicum of stress. And, um, this was really weird for me. And so I eventually, I actually stopped doing that program. I, I left it and, uh, my girlfriend and I went on a trip on a ski trip and, um, and I just took a few days to not the entire day, but like an hour at a time, which is a, a good chunk but to just try meditating and focusing on that pain. And, and because it seemed weird, it seemed, okay, this seems like it could be something physical, but it comes in and out. It's this weird psychological thing. And the more I, just like Taylor said, the more I focused in on that and got really granular about what are these actual sensations I'm feeling, allowing myself to feel them, kind of just purposefully relaxing that area over and over again, over the course of a few days, um, for about an hour at a time in this very safe, very calm, um, relaxed context, it went away after that week. I, I didn't have that pain anymore. And I started realizing, oh, this is psychosomatic. This is me. This is my brain, um, putting uh, like in, you know, uh, imposing pain in a specific area of my body to tell me to stop doing something, stop uh, this, you know, this lifestyle that I was living because it just wasn't working for me and, um, and reduce stress and, and all these different things. But um, just from my personal experience, this, it can feel very, very real. And then to, to kind of um, cure it or, or get into it, to treat it, uh, you know, just getting that, that moment to really interocept to focus on that sensation 
relax it, let it dissipate. At least that's been, that was my experience. Um, I haven't had a lot of experience with chronic pain, but um, that was just my story. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think something that's that's really important to highlight from what you just said is you, you really need to understand that psychosomatic doesn't mean you're crazy, right? Like, and there's, I think there's a, there's a cultural stigma with that of like, if someone says like, oh, it's all in your head, it's psychosomatic, that that somehow means that like you're damaged, that there's something wrong with you. But I think something that we're trying to highlight through this whole episode is that that's what our brain does. Our brain interprets our environment, it interprets the things that we're going through, and then it tries to create signals to us to try to uh, ameliorate those situations. And some of those come out as pain. Uh, and I think you you highlighted something really important in that, like, you noticed when it was happening that uh, you sat down in the morning and it was like, oh, like I'm in this environment, like, ah, uh, so I noticed something really similar. So I, I got in a really bad snowboard accident about 10 years ago. I got a concussion. I uh, caught a toe edge to him like 35, 40 miles an hour. wasn't wearing a helmet. Uh, full force to my chest and my shoulder. Uh, probably flipped a couple of times. Groomed on right under the gondola. Everybody saw it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, from then on, I, I mean, I went and I got my head checked out. And then like my body was, was in pain, but uh, I didn't get any x-rays or anything done at the time. And I kind of just like let things heal for a little while. And I started to get kind of this gut pain that was like right under my ribs. And I noticed, I so around this time, I had started working this really stressful job. I mentioned earlier that I did this like medical sales thing. I was going into actual surgeries and like telling doctors what instruments they were supposed to use. I was responsible for uh, having hundreds of instruments and implants at the hospital at the right time. And all of them needed to be accounted for. Or the surgery couldn't happen. And like if a piece was missing in the middle of the surgery, then like things could just like go crazy, right? Really, really stressful. Uh, and I noticed around that time that the back pain that I had started to get way worse, but that I also had this, this really bad gut pain and it, it sent me and I'd always feel it like right at the bottom of my sternum and my ribs. And so I was like convinced that it was this gut pain and it sent me down this like wild goose chase of like going to see gastrointestinal doctors. Mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of, a lot of stress induces kind of gastrointestinal stuff because you're in a fear state, Right. And when you're in a fear state and something that we haven't highlighted is that there actually is a distinction between the left and the right half of the brain. When we're talking about these feelings, the right half of the brain tends to be involved in really unpleasant feelings. And the left half of the brain tends to be involved in really pleasant feelings. Uh, and if you're in a constant state of stress and fear and all of these things, then you're also kind of exaggerate, exaggerating those unpleasant feelings. Right. And you're putting your body into like, OK, we need to be in fight or flight. I've had to re kind of uh, orient myself to the word safe. I've had a therapist tell me like, oh, you just don't feel safe. And I'm just like, I'm not in danger, right? Like <laughs> there's nobody holding a gun to me, like whatever. I, uh, but your body doesn't interpret it that way. Your body speaks a different language. Like there's, there's a, you're either comfortable enough to sit there and not worry about anything around you or you're not. And your body is in that stress situation. It's causing your gut to, to, to distend uh, because you're sending resources to other places and all these things. Uh, well, I went down this wild goose chase. I had scopes done on my stomach. They they originally found an ulcer from stress in my stomach, mm. but they they couldn't figure out like why I had this this back pain. And I was convinced that it was because like nerves were getting pinched when I ate stuff that, uh, but what I realized was that so much of the gut stuff, so much of the gut pain was related to my stressful environments, my stressful situations. And now I'm a PhD student with, uh, with a family and a two-year-old son. Uh, I have to take on an extra job as an adjunct professor at a university just to be able to afford to feed my son <laughs> uh, because of like not making enough money on my graduate stipend. Uh, and then I do this on the side because I love this. Uh, but a lot of that piles up and it, it starts to make me, my stomach feel again, like that again. And I, I went and saw gastro again a couple months ago. I'm just like, oh God, I can't figure this out. And I randomly was on vacation and I kind of tweaked my back and I went and saw someone and I was just like, I was like, yeah, I got this back pain because I was like hiking with my toddler. Uh, but I also have this other pain on the other side that's been there for like 10 years. And he was like, let's x-ray that. 
and they did an x-ray and I had three broken ribs that hadn't healed correctly for all this time. And so it was this really interesting distinction where the back pain was always there, but I was always running away from it because I thought it was related to all of this stress and all of this other things. And I was doing all of this work to try to alleviate that. So I think it's this really nice depiction of there are some things that you feel that are structural, that that you really need medical help you need. And, and I was really frustrated with the, the medical uh, world, the Western medical world, because they weren't finding it when I was going to the gastro. And that was causing me to be in a constant state of fear. I was constantly running away from it. I was like, what, what is wrong with me? Why am I always in pain? And it caused that pain to get worse because I was so afraid of it. Um, and then when I figured out that like the gut stuff is separate from the from the, the actual structural stuff, did a lot of meditation and a lot of like, like he was saying, somatic processing around like getting in touch with my stress, trying to feel safe, trying to remind my body that it's okay. The gut stuff went away. And now I'm doing PT to work on the actual structural stuff. And so I think it, it really kind of highlights that like we don't want to discount pain entirely and say that like all of it is in your head, that that it's all this cognitive thing because it's not. There could be some some things that need to be rehabbed, that need to be fixed. Um, but there's a lot that if you really take the time to think about your social situations, to think about the emotions that you're going through because of your social social situations, that can create pain, that can move, that can cause you to, to be in distress, that can cause you to be in a constant state of fear. And you really need to spend time reminding yourself that you're okay and that you're safe. Yeah, that's so true. It's so good to highlight the the social aspect of it. Um, and I'll just say like, from, from knowing you for, I don't know, maybe a year, I don't know how long, but right. um, I, I have to tell everyone that Taylor is a very stress resilient person just from the stories that he's told me and uh you know he kind of glossed over it but not only has a toddler also has three dogs and uh, all the other stuff he mentioned so um you know take it from him uh and then uh so yeah the social aspect too is really important because i think you know you you hit on something there that it's it's um i mean i think sometimes we think of the word social as just kind of meaning like you're your interpersonal relationships with people, but it can also be your kind of view of yourself and the larger society and what your role is, what you're supposed to do and, and all these things. So I think when that gets warped, when you, you think you're supposed to be a certain person um, or you're supposed to uh, be, I don't know, accomplishing certain things and you're not, that can really mess with your head and it can add to that stress, which can add to this pain. And, um, but good to mention that it's also not just psychosomatic, it's also structural. Um, and there's this interplay. So it's, it's just really important to keep in touch with your body. Um, especially when you're having chronic pain or any kind of pain, and we're going to, I'm going to link, um, some of these uh, really great lectures on chronic pain from some pain experts uh, because they give they go into a lot more detail than we were able to hear. Um, but yeah, just keep that in mind that you know stress and uh, you know also just some other things we didn't mention, uh, just behavioral things that can add to to pain, whether it's re or sorry whether it's physical or psychological, can be like you know poor diet, not exercising. Yeah. Sleep is a really big one. Um, I'm uh, going to be coming out with a video on sleep in a little nice. while here. Uh, but but sleep is is super important for all this stuff. And I think a lot of it comes down to to kind of stress and the, the safety signals that you were just talking about. I think something that that I really liked from what you just said is that we have a responsibility, right? Uh, this is this is a big part of the way that I, I think about the brain that like the brain evolved to take care of the body and how many of us are actually paying attention to our body. Most of us are abusing our bodies, right? We're neglecting them. We're not thinking about them. We're thinking about like what you just said, Andrew, all of the expectations that are piled on us. I need to accomplish this. I need to do this. I need to push myself. I need to dig down deep, right? And you really need to take the time to to realize that like, you as a cognitive entity have a responsibility to take care of these millions and millions of cells that you're ultimately responsible for. 
right? With nutrition, with sleep, with uh, just doing kind of mindfulness routines around feeling safe and all of these kind of things. And if you can really kind of internalize that responsibility and, and adopt a belief like that, it can really change your world. Uh, and so uh, I think that maybe I think we're we're at time, maybe a good oh, place yeah. to, to to wrap up. But uh, thank you all for continuing to to show up and watch us just talk about the brain because it's a, a fascinating thing to to think about and kind of gain insights into your own experience. Uh, but Andrew, if you want to kind of tell them about how they can help us out, maybe. Yes, definitely. Um, first of all, uh, leaving these comments in the chat is really great. We love to talk to you guys here and um, get smart quick. Uh, just on your question about um, emotions and decision making and thinking, I would just point you toward uh, that same book, This Strange Order of Things. And, and just Antonio Damasio's work generally, he, yeah. he talks about the role of emotions and decision making a lot. So we don't have time to get into that here. But, but yes, um, uh, comments, likes on the YouTube uh, channel, subscribe to both of our channels, please. Those are zero cost ways of supporting <laughs> us. And, um, but we will be coming out, we will be launching a Patreon page soon and, uh, you know, consider subscribing to that. We'll maybe have different tiers that is yet to be decided. Also, Taylor has a store, a merch store with all kinds of, um, neuroscience and psychology gear for all you brainiacs out there. So, um, <laughs> could definitely go check that out. Those are, those will be linked in the description of this video. Um, also please check out the podcast, the social brain podcast on whatever podcast platform you use and give us a five-star rating there. Uh, that's another way that you can support us. That's uh, really helpful. Awesome. Well, thank you guys all for, again, for, for showing up and making this possible because we, we love having these conversations. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you later.